Welcome to another great message at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. Well, I know you've been doing a, a series uh, on Jesus and pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament, so I want to continue on that. But I want to start off by... Uh, reminding you, those of you that were around at that time, almost 30 years ago, uh, that was before the internet even existed. It was estimated that 750 million global viewers uh, witnessed a spectacle with another about 2 million people lining the streets of London and with uh, about 300 3,500 special invited guests at an event that became the most popular TV broadcast in history at that time. And some of you may, may know that I'm referring to the wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Diana. And uh, just those statistics prove that people love royal weddings. I think they are kind of uh, so taken up with it. And I remember that we watched the whole thing on television. And uh, it, it was probably because my invitation got lost in the mail. So we had to just uh, watch it on, on, on television. But I'll never forget watching it. And at one particular time, in that, in that time of the history in South Africa there were certain boycotts that we still experienced. So we could watch everything except the reception. That's where they restricted the broadcast. And I was sitting there in front of the TV, imagining what the hall looked like, trying to think how the tables were decorated, especially what kind of food they served. <laughs> and... Um, I, I don't know if the Holy Spirit speaks to you like he does to me, but sometimes he has to speak to me in simple ways and humorous ways. But I was watching this and wondering, you know, it would have been great to be there. And I clearly heard the Holy Spirit say these words to me in this way. You ain't seen nothing yet. And I started meditating on that, and I thought, here's an earthly prince getting married to a young lady uh, from the aristocracy, and we are heading for a wedding feast where not an earthly prince, not even a king, but the king of kings is going to get married. And the Holy Spirit impressed on my heart that I'm not even an invited guest to that wedding. I'm part of the bride of Christ. And I'm seated in a very privileged place. And so when I thought about that, I, I, I remember watching that, that broadcast and the moment that everybody was waiting for was for Lady Diana to step out of that beautiful golden coach and everybody wanted to see her dress and I with a long trail and whatever it was and so the whole focus was on 
the bride. Not that the groom was much to look at. <laughs> but the focus was on the bride. And that is what it's like in weddings. The focus is on the bride. But you need to realize, I'm going to show you a scripture today where the focus is on the groom, not on the bride. So, if I can give a title, because I know Adrian has these uh, interesting titles that he used in the series uh, about Jesus, I'm going to speak about the royal groom. And our focus is going to be on Jesus, and he is, is the bridegroom. Now, uh, I, I think this sermon, for me at least, is, is quite different to the usual thing that, that I do. And I think it's unusual also in this sense that I'm not going to tell you what you must do. I'm going to tell you what he has done and who he is. And I think sometimes, from time to time, we need to focus on who he is and uh, the kind of sermon where Jesus is lifted up, and I think that automatically will stir a response from us. So, in, in, in modern times, I don't think we give much attention to these things because there are not many countries left where you will have royalty. But in biblical times, there were some essential symbols associated with royalty. Uh, and besides the, the, the king's domain and his reign, that's his kingdom and his sovereign power to rule, uh, those things may not have been that easily discernible or describable, but there were some very visible symbols of royal dignity and majesty uh, identifying someone as a king. And just a, a few of them. First of all, there's the anointing. I don't know if that uh, still happens in modern times, but in biblical times, kings were anointed, and the anointing speaks of empowerment. Kings were anointed, uh, priests were anointed, and prophets were anointed. So the anointing was a visible sign of empowerment, of authority, and in this case, royal authority. Then there's the throne. Obviously, when we think of a, of a king, we think of a throne. A crown, a scepter, royal robes, the palace, etc., etc., now, before I, I get to the scripture that I want to focus on, because I'm going to take an Old Testament scripture, uh, as, as we have said, focusing on Jesus every time. Before I get there, I want to take you to the book of Hebrews, which is a very interesting book because it's kind of a link between uh, Old and New Covenant. And, and the book of Hebrews uses some of these symbols when speaking about Jesus. And obviously, the whole theme of Hebrews is that Jesus is superior than anyone else. Uh, so let me start in, in chapter 1 and verse 3, and it says this, When He, Jesus, had cleansed us from our sins, He sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God of heaven. That's the New Living Translation. Now that phrase, right hand, you will find all over the Bible and it speaks of authority, and in this case, again, royal, majestic kind of authority. So that's the first indication that Jesus is king. 
Then in, in chapter 2 and verse 9, and again I'm using the New Living Translation, it says, because He, Jesus, suffered death for us, He is now crowned with glory and honor. Going back to chapter 1 and verses 8 and 9, it says, to the Son, that's Jesus, He, that's God the Father, says, your throne, O God, is forever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. In verse 9, he speaks about God anointing Jesus. So all these terms, right hand, crown, throne, scepter, kingdom, anointed, all speak of the kingly authority and, and the power of, of, of Jesus. Now, what is, what is very interesting is that these last verses that I read in Hebrews 1, verses 8 and 9, are actually a quote from Psalm 45. And I wanted uh, to use that psalm. I really uh, felt that, that I want to do this, go to the psalm, and as I said, give you a totally different style of preaching, at least for me, by giving you a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of what this psalm means. I will not be able to finish this psalm. I know that because there's so much in the psalm. God's Word is so rich. So, I want to put it this way. This sermon has no ending. But let me give you hope. <laughs> By that I mean, it shouldn't end here. And uh, teaching is kind of a main emphasis of my ministry, so I have the right to give you homework. <laughs> and I really pray, this was my prayer, that the Holy Spirit will spark something inside of you that will leave you dissatisfied with just scratching the surface of Scripture. And I really pray that the Holy Spirit will stir something inside of you that will make you a serious student of God's Word. So I do want to encourage you, wherever we leave off this morning, continue that at home. And go and study this and see how rich God's Word really is. I'll never forget uh, when we were at Bible school, we were supposed to in one course study the book of James and the person who, who taught the book of James never got past James 1 and verse 3. And I think it was a 24-session course. Uh, <laughs> because God's Word is, is so rich. So uh, what is interesting about this psalm is that it really is a messianic psalm. It speaks of the Messiah. And it speaks of the Messiah specifically in, in terms of ruler, king, of warrior, of um, groom, lover, husband, in that sense. And that's what I, I want to focus on. And I do have here in my notes a number of supporting scriptures which I cannot share with you. Otherwise, we will have no ending to this sermon. But if you want to follow just a few uh, verses uh, of Psalm 45 with me. Let's start in verse 1. I'm using the New King James Version, and it says the following. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the King, 
My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter. Here the psalmist turns to the bride. Consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty because he's your Lord. Worship him. Let me stop there because I need to uh, at least make up some time somewhere. So very interesting. You'll see that it continues for another verse uh, addressing the, the, the bride. And then it turns its focus again on the groom. So as I said, this is unusual because the focus is on the groom, and we know the groom is the Messiah, it's Jesus Christ. So let me again encourage you, don't just scratch the surface of Scripture. Go and dig, go and delve, go and discover deeper truths, fresh revelation, and the richness of God's Word uh, describing the Messiah for us. Now, here's the introduction to the psalm. It's... Um, what theologians call a con contemplative composition. Uh, I can impress you with some more big words. It's a didactic ode. I had to go look up all those words. <laughs> it means it's, a, it's an educational and a reflective poem. It's a, a narrative ballad and, and it's uh, uh, obviously dedicated to the king. And if you go and read in the introduction of the psalm, it's attributed to the sons of Korah. That's not my wife. Uh, the sons of Korah were temple musicians from the tribe of Levi. And it's very interesting if you start reading the psalm, there was instruction to the chief musician. I think today we'll just call him the band leader or the choir master, and, um, and there's an instruction about the tune, which was a well-known tune in those days. So it was a popular song, if I can put it this way. Now, when we study the psalm, you'll see that it's actually a wedding song because it was uh, dedicated to the king and his uh, bride. And some scholars actually think that this was a wedding song written for King Solomon and his bride. I have some challenges with that theory. And my challenge is this. 
if it was dedicated to Solomon and his bride, which one? <laughs> because he had 700 wives and 300 plus porcupines, uh, concubines. <laughs> And so it's quite difficult to, to try and identify which wife, which bride. I, I heard a story about uh, King Solomon that uh, sent one of his sermons because he saw this beautiful young woman and he said, go and find out who she is because I'd like to marry her. And so the servant went and said, um, you know what, are you married? Because I have been sent Someone wants to marry you. She says, don't be silly. I'm King Solomon's wife. <laughs> so what is interesting quite often in the Bible, you'll see that sometimes something is called a double narrative. It could have reference to some earthly person, but when you read it in detail, you will see that there are some facts uh, and descriptions in the psalm that could only refer to the coming Messiah. It couldn't fit any human being. So clearly, this is a prophetic psalm, a messianic uh, psalm. Now, uh, in, in, in one of the versions of the New King James uh, that I use, uh, the translators gave this heading in Psalm 45, and obviously this was not in the original text, but it, they, they gave this heading, The Glories of the Messiah and His Bride. And it's very interesting, although the Bible was never written in uppercase and lowercase letters, that quite often in some translations like the New King James, they will give you an indication whether this is speaking about God. So some of the pronouns in this, uh, in this psalm are capitalized indicating that this is referring to the Messiah. And it's very interesting to do a study uh, along those lines. Now, let me just uh, mention one thing. Remember we read out of Hebrews, and we say that the author of Hebrews actually quotes Psalm 45. Go and look at Hebrews 1, 8, and 9 again, and you will see when he quotes the psalm, he clearly uh, equates it with, a song written about the Messiah. There's no question in the mind of the author of Hebrews that this is a reference to Christ. Now, uh, I said that it has been attributed to the sons of Korah, but it's interesting that whoever wrote it wrote in the first person singular, so I'm going to just refer to the psalmist. Uh, and here is the love song or the love story. This is probably the original basis for the King and I story. So if I can uh, divide this psalm like they would do with a play, if you, if you see the plot of a play, it would say scene one or act one, scene so-and-so. So here's act one, and it's the psalmist introducing the psalm. Listen to what it says in verse one. He says, my heart is overflowing with a good theme. So the psalmist here explains the inspiration of this psalm, and he, he speaks about his heart 
bubbling up like a fountain. It's like the heart of a bride overflowing with adoration for her groom. And here's the message, and I did say that I'm not going to tell you what you must do, but if we realize the beauty of our groom, it will stir praise in our hearts. It, 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 it should be an incessant fountain. And I like what it says in the book of Hebrews again, that, that um, there should be a continual praise of God, and he calls it the fruit of our lips when we give praise to God. It should be fruit that just comes forth naturally, in season, out of season, there should be praise for our groom on our lips. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've done this before. Just recently, we, we bought some groceries and we put it in the boot of the car. And when we got home, obviously, the things were, were um, moving around in, in, in the boot. And, and we bought some carbonated soft drinks. And uh, I, I wanted one of them. And when I opened them, it was just a fountain gushing out. We should be like that. When someone touches you, whew, that's what, what he speaks about here. He says, my heart is overflowing with a good theme. And here's what Jesus said in the New Testament. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I should maybe, could I use your bottle of water if you open it for me, Will? I should maybe just illustrate it this way. And I know at least it's not fizzy. But if I take this bottle of water and I shake it, what comes out? Water. Why? Because it's full of water. I know that's very deep. But I want to ask you this. What comes out of you when you are shaken? Thanks, Will. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We should be so filled with the glory of the Lord. We should be so filled with awe for our King that we should be like the psalmist and our heart should be overflowing with a, a good theme. And the good theme or the good word causing the heart to overflow here is obviously the outstanding virtues of Christ, the, the glorious groom. And, and we should be familiar, we should know and appreciate the qualities of uh, the King, Christ Jesus. Let me continue in verse 1. He says, still in verse 1, I recite my composition concerning the king. So very clearly, this is a poem, as I said, dedicated to the Messiah King. It's much like a love letter or a, a love song. And in our hearts, there should be a continual composition of royal symphonies to our God and our King, Jesus Christ. And then the last part of verse 1, he says, My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. So he says, I'm ready, I'm, I'm, I'm eager, I'm, I'm fluent, I'm, I'm diligent, I'm skillful. And very interesting, the word for writer in, in the Hebrew here uh, includes the meaning of to number. 
to recount, to record, to remember, to write, to publish, to proclaim, to tell, to rehearse, to declare, to celebrate. And I, again, I want to say this. What we should do as a result of our love for Jesus Christ is that we should not be ashamed to preach and publish and proclaim the glories of our King. Amen. So that's what the psalmist is all about here. So um, he's actually saying, when I think of this Messiah King, inspired words flow quite easily. You don't have to encourage a bride to say good words about her groom, and that's the same thing that should be in, in our hearts. I just want to read this to you. This is an interesting uh, psalm. In uh, Psalm 9, it's a psalm of David. It says the following, and I'm using the message paraphrase here. He says, I'm thanking you, God, from a full heart. I'm writing the book on your wonders. I'm whistling, laughing, and jumping for joy. I'm singing your song, High God. In verse 14, he says, I will write the book on hallelujahs. <laughs> on the corner of Main and First, I will hold a street meeting. I'll be the song leader. I will fill the air with salvation songs. And here's another psalm, this time of Asaph, Psalm 75 and verse 1. And it says this, we thank you, God, we thank you. Your name is our favorite word. Your mighty works are all we talk about. Wow. I want to say this, and I know I'm reading from the Old Testament. If those guys could rave about God under the Old Covenant, how much more should we, who have the fullness of the new covenant, continually praise God. Let me continue. So that was Act 1, the psalmist and the psalm, introducing uh, himself and, and his poem to the audience. Here's Act 2 and Scene 1, and here's where he starts praising the king as the groom, the lover, the husband. And he says in verse 2, you are fairer than the sons of men. Now, there already is an indication of his divinity. You are fairer than the sons of men. It literally means you are beautified with more beauty than any human being. And as I said, uh, it speaks about the Messiah. Now, when you read an interesting book in the Bible, and this is uh, a writing of Solomon, uh, the classical uh, song of Solomon, it could speak of Jesus and his bride, and it's interesting to, to read that. And in that book, he says about um, the groom, you are the most outstanding amongst 10,000. That's what Jesus is. He has no rival. He has no equal. There's no one on his level. He's matchless in beauty. He's incomparable in his greatness. No one could ever replace him or be like him. No one comes close to him. And that's what he says in verse 2. He continues and he says, and I like this phrase, Grace is poured upon your lips. 
Now, the Hebrew is interesting because it could be translated two ways. Grace is poured out on your lips or grace is poured out by your lips. And I'll just read the same phrase in different translations. The, the NIV says, your lips have been anointed with grace. The New Living Translation says, gracious words stream from your lips. The contemporary English version says, your words are always kind. I love this. And there's a message here, I think, for us as, as church. If we are representing Christ, our words should be seasoned with grace. We should speak gracious and kind and loving words. If we really um, are in a relationship with this Messiah King, we, we, we shouldn't speak words of, of judgment, harsh, condemnatory words but words of, of grace. Jesus actually, uh, the Bible says it very clearly, that He came to show us the grace of the Father. It says in John's Gospel in the beginning that when Jesus came and He was manifested as the Word made flesh, that He was full of grace and truth. And that's what we need to be full of. Um, and, and, and even the words of Jesus were so full of grace. I, I like this scripture in the New Testament, in Luke's gospel, and it says the following. It says, all who were there spoke well of him, of Jesus, and were amazed, listen to this, by the gracious words that fell from his lips. Wow. So Jesus speaks grace unto us. And from his lips flowed kindness. Now, there are different pictures that the psalmist wants to paint here. And he says, from the anointed lips of Jesus, gracious words streamed like cool waters to a man in a scorching desert. Kind words poured like a soothing balm on the weary. Loving words flowed like healing oil or ointment to the sick. No wonder in the New Testament it says this, no one ever spoke like this man. No one had the same words with the same effect and the same power of Jesus. That's why we need to be filled with the abundance of His gracious works so that when we are shaken, that grace will pour forth from our lips. Amen. So, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips or from your lips. And then uh, verse 2 ends this, this way. Therefore God has blessed you forever. That is so beautiful because uh, uh, God's favor rests on Jesus eternally. That's why he has an everlasting kingdom. And here's the message for us. If you want to enjoy God's favor, get connected with Jesus. Because he's blessed forever. If you want to be blessed, hang around the one who is blessed forever. Hallelujah. Let's continue. My goodness, this is my introduction. And my time is up already, almost. Let me move on to Acts or Act 2 and Scene 2 where uh, uh, the king was praised as the groom, lover, husband. Now the king is praised as a warrior. And here's an interesting verse, verse 3. 
Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. Clearly, royal language used here because the Messiah is the victorious warrior king, the mighty one, literally the hero of the story, defeating his enemies, establishing his righteous kingdom. And that gracious glory and magnificent uh, majesty of the Messiah king was made manifest when Jesus uh, became flesh. So here, the Messiah conquers with his sword. And what does the New Testament tell us about a sword? The Word of God is the sword. So the Messiah conquers through His Word. His Word, as I said, His words are gracious and kind to His beloved, like refreshing water, like oil, like ointment, but it also brings judgment on His enemies, like a, a lethal sword. Now here's something interesting, because did you notice the word thigh there? Gird your sword upon your thigh. It just doesn't just indicate where the sword was held, but the thigh was considered an, a very important part of the body. Uh, you can go and check this out, but quite often when somebody wanted to swear with an oath, they would put their hand on their thigh. And that would mean this is a strong, unbreakable oath. Quite often when somebody had to repent, they hit their thigh. So very symbolic language here. And then the, the thigh, being so close to the reproductive organs, was a man's foundation or the source of life. And here, the thigh uh, uh, is where the, the sword was placed. And, and, and you need to realize it speaks about your very life because that sword strikes at your heart. God doesn't want to just change your thinking. He wants to change your whole person, starting with your heart. And that's what His words will do. Let me, let me rush here. Verse 4, And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. I, I don't want to say too much about that, but we know that Jesus is the victorious king riding on the pure white horse. He's the incomparable king, matchless majesty. That's how we need to praise him. And it says his kingdom, his majesty is based on truth, humility, and righteousness. That's so different to the world that often um, people in authority, their whole rule is based on pomp, pride, and pretense. But here it's truth, humility, and, and righteousness. Then verse 4 continues and it says, And your right hand, there's that expression again, shall teach you awesome things. And as I said, it speaks of authority. And uh, the king is, is ready to demonstrate awesome things, great things to you in your life. Verse 5. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples, fall, the peoples fall under you. So God's word is not just likened to a sword, but it's also likened to, to arrows here that are sharp because it pierces. Now here's something very interesting. And uh, I, I wish I had more time to explain this. But you need to realize this. God's word as I said, look at me, does not want to just reach you here. It wants to pierce right here to the essence of your very being. 
And go and study the book of Acts, chapter 2, where, like no other day probably in history of the church, we see supernatural manifestations. And three kinds of supernatural manifestations says there was a sound as of a mighty rushing wind. Not a real wind because they would have been blown out of the place. But a sound as of a mighty rushing wind. Supernatural manifestation. Then it says there were tongues of fire. Not real fire. They would have been deep roasted. Supernatural manifestation. And then the supernatural manifestation of speaking in tongues, not just foreign languages that, that they have learned, but supernaturally speaking to people in a language that they could understand. So, despite all these supernatural manifestations, go and read it. Go and study Acts 2. You'll see, here was the response, the reaction of the people to those supernatural manifestations. They were amazed, they marveled, they wondered. Incidentally, that's why these things are called wonders, because they make you wonder. And that's where it hits. Nothing wrong with supernatural manifestations, but I love what John Osteen, father of Joel Osteen, used to say, used to say that signs and wonders are just God's dinner bell. Because the meat, the food on the table is the word. And go in and, and check out Acts 2. It says, although they marveled, they wondered, they were amazed. When Peter stood up and preached the word, it says they were pierced to the heart. And go and look at the two questions that these people asked. When they uh, witnessed the, the signs and wonders, their question was this, what could this mean? This is where they asked it from. But when the word pierced their heart, look at the question, what should we do? Wow. And I want to say this, if we are connected with this groom, with this king, with this mighty warrior, then our words should not just hit people here, it should hit people in the heart, not just the head. And I hope that's what the word has done with you this morning. I hope it's hit you in the heart so that it could change you and, and it could, uh, as I said, encourage you to, to continue continue with this. Oh, oh, so much that I could do. Let me move on to, to Acts 2 uh, or Act 2 and Scene 3 where the king is praised as ruler. Uh, it says in verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A, a, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Oh, here's something interesting. Let me just mention this. Isn't it interesting in English when we speak about a king, we call him ruler. And then the instrument that we use to draw a straight line and to measure things exactly, we also call a ruler. And, and very interesting, I checked this out. Those two words come from the same root. And there's a message in this for us. When you rule, it should be done in a straight way. And, and there's a message for leaders here. We need to rule in righteousness. 
Let's not be cook-sister Christians. Sweet, but twisted. <laughs> Syrupy on Sundays, but wicked in the week. Let's live out what we stand for and what we hear on a Sunday. I wish I, I, I could say more about that. It, it says in verse 7, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. I just want to, to finish uh, verse 7 at least. Listen to the last part of verse 7. Because this is an amazing scripture, and I always think by myself, how come the Jews do not see this? Because listen what it says. Therefore God... Your God has anointed you. Wow. God anointed God. Clearly, this is God the Father anointing Jesus because he emptied himself of his divine privileges and rights and had to be empowered by God the Father while he was on earth. And this is speaking of the Trinity. God the Father anointing Jesus the Son with the Holy Spirit. How come they don't see it? And, and interesting, it says, anointed him with what? With the oil of gladness. More than your companions. The Holy Spirit, I want to say to you, is a spirit of joy and gladness. Sometimes people think that, that being holy and being sad is the same thing. Go and study. When people were baptized in the Holy Spirit... Go and study the connection between Holy Spirit and joy. You will see that sadness and holiness are not even related at all. We should be anointed with gladness. Amen. We should bring joy wherever we are. That's what we are called to do. I wish I could have, uh, I would have continued here. Now, we, we know that, that grooms were also anointed there, and, and it, it, it speaks of, of the groom being the most important man. I don't, don't know today, we, in, in modern society, we, call the, uh, we speak about the best man. Actually, the best man is the second best man, because the groom is the best man. And, and I want you to see this. We should always have the king at the center of everything. Oh, my word, there's so much more that I wanted to share here. If you go and read uh, about the, the gold from Ophir, it means um, that, that treasures came from distant lands. There's a message in here that the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the, the just. Act 3 here in verse 10, addresses the bride, and it basically says, focus on your Lord, your King, leave your past life, leave singleness, you are now connected forever. You should embrace married life, and that's a message for us. I wish I, I had more time, but as I warned you, we will not be able to finish. So please go take this psalm at home, go and study it, and see the awesomeness of the king that we are serving, this royal groom. Let's stand.